to the rock fight where we speak our truth, slay sacred cows, and sometimes agree to disagree. This is an outdoor podcast that aims for the head. I'm Colin True, and today Sophie Benson is back here on the rock fight. Sophie's a UK-based environmental journalist, and it's been it's been a long time since you've been on the show, but it's been so long, in fact, we were just talking about it that you've written a book. So welcome back, Sophie. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be back. I've got I've got plenty of ammunition for today. Yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like the, the fashion world or any version of the apparel world has slowed down in giving us things to talk about when it comes to environmental topics or sustainability. No, definitely not. I mean, one day I would like to come on and just say it's all fixed, but it's it really- not happening. <laughs> We're just wearing burlap sacks, you know, it's like, that's it, guys. We figured it out. <laughs> I won't be in burlap, just saying. <laughs> My version will be more stylish. <laughs> I follow you on social media and I see what you are able to do with secondhand and your sewing machine. So if we all came down to like space age style, like Mylar suits or whatever, <laughs> you will still look better than the rest of us because I know that you'll make it look good. <laughs> I'll take that. Okay, deal. <laughs> so you're here to give us some you know, context around environmental topics happening in the outdoor and fashion space. So let's kind of get into it. Since the last time we spoke, uh, there's been a little bit of a not surge, but definitely some spikes in the in the circularity conversation in the outdoor space or brands like Houdini and Smartwool and Nemo. And Nemo is an equipment brand, but uh, on the apparel front, Houdini and Smartwool, they've kind of been in the outdoor industry news for promoting circular options. I feel like circularity is almost been more of an insider's term, probably mostly because a lot of brands don't want to talk about it because I know it's a really hard topic to tackle. But when I see that, when you kind of see these things kind of break through, or even if it's just getting mentioned in a press release, and you're like, oh, it's happening. Somebody, somebody said circularity <laughs> or circular options, or even if they don't use the word circular, it's a, we have a take back option, right, mm-hmm. for when you're done with this. Mm. Um, it's just kind of, it's encouraging. So just kind of speaking as a whole, and I know you, you usually address the broader fashion market, but is, is circularity kind of on the rise? Are you hearing more of that, of that, that phrase uh, in, in the apparel space? Uh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think just the language has shifted um, definitely from sustainability being the main word to people talking about circularity. And I mean, yesterday I was on a BBC World Service podcast talking about circularity and that covers everything. So I think that shows that there's like a global audience appetite for, um, yeah, for the topic. And it's just, you know, is it becoming a bit of a buzzword maybe, but definitely it's in the conversation more. It's incredible. Like, so you're you're on kind of a larger kind of network platform, and that is something that is coming up frequently now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are looking for explainers of it. They kind of want to know what it is. Is it the same thing as a circular economy? What does it even mean? How does it change things? So the fact that people even want to know what circularity actually looks like, I think, is a good is a good thing. Right. Yeah. I just you know the idea of like brands wanting to keep their products out of a landfill and kind of saying that on the nose. And I think we talked about the last time we were here that until there is just kind of across the board legislation kind of mm-hmm. requiring brands to do certain things mm-hmm. and we're sort of in their hands, mm-hmm. you know, so just seeing that conversation. And I, and again, I, I think we talked about this also when you were here last time about, I just look at the outdoor industry as needing to lead on this because there's a lot of practicality into the yeah. products they produce mm-hmm. and to say, Hey, you know, we will take it back. We will repurpose this for you because it's kind of part of our mission. I think is a crucial element to just the branding of it. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, there has to be that level of responsibility. And I think that's been part of the problem for so long is like brands will just put something out into the ether and like their responsibility just stopped at the point of sale. Um, And now, you know, there is definitely, there's definitely a start of an acceptance of responsibility, but uh, whether we're actually really seeing that kind of come to fruition, 
holistically and on the level that we need to see it you know I don't think so but there is tangible undeniable evidence that clothes whether it's outdoor gear or fashion whatever it is is going to landfill so you kind of can't not talk about it in some way and tackle it in some way are there any brands you you want to highlight that kind of come to mind that you think are doing a good job with it right now yeah it's interesting I mean I think brands are doing it in different ways so you know like I think it's really good to see brands offering repair for example and that's happening like in the high street um you know I really like to see that it's a great brand um called Kalina Strada who worked with um uh, secondhand garments that had been sent to the global south um in Ghana and they kind of worked them into their collections uh which I really like so you know I think some brands are out there doing the right thing you know like partnering with repair platforms um using dead stock and recycled fabrics that's great um but I don't know. And I feel like I'm always on here and I'm like <laughs> the cynical voice. And I'm like, you know. It's still pretty cynical out there. So go for yeah. it. It's okay. Yeah. I just, it, it, you know, I think we're starting to see the start of it. But at the same time, there's compared to the like volume of products that are in landfill, I don't know if the response is really, um, you know, up to the level. So when I was kind of looking into this topic and kind of, okay, let's see who said what, I came across a really interesting interview with Adidas, actually, who I think, you know, they kind of, um, they sort of tread the line between like, you know, outdoor and fashion, I would say. So I think we sort sure, of yeah. both probably have like a handle on them. And it was 2019 that they said on the record, uh, we can make a shoe from as many recycled materials as possible, but if we don't recover it from the consumer, so it doesn't end up in landfill or the ocean, we haven't done our job properly. And that sounds great. Like, that sounds like responsibility. They're even talking about landfill. Like, they're admitting that. But then if you fast forward to the 23rd of June last year, um, and you look at uh, the All Foundation's Instagram, the All Foundation are based out of Cantamante Market in Ghana, um, which receives literally tons of uh, secondhand waste from the from the global yeah. north. Um, Adidas claimed the number one spot for which brand's products showed up most in their beach cleanup. So not even just, like in stock that's been sold on the beach becoming waste so I think you know the there's like a chasm between what people are saying and what they sort of yeah. recognize that they need to do and what they're actually doing and you know they're producing I think 482 million units per year ish that's enormous so the the kind of end of the cycle like collecting and you know sort of trying to close the leap loop is great but we also have to like turn off the tap we can't just like mop up the spill we have to turn off the tap in the beginning as well and this goes back to the yeah we do need there needs to be some rules put in the place probably to really make real headway here mm. i guess the good that some of these things do and some of these brands at least even if they make the statement if it's mm. it, we've said before that the consumers you can't put the pressure on consumers to solve yeah. this because they're largely they're not looking into this stuff kind of like proactively, yeah. right? You know, it's, and we talked about it before and, you know, you see like the, the organic sticker on an apple, like, oh, okay, organic, good. Like it's mm -hmm. harder to do that on clothing. Totally. So if you can get it in the vernacular and people start to mm -hmm. understand what it is, mm -hmm. then maybe that creates some consumer pressure. But yeah, but to, the, to your point, we were talking about just the scale of stuff mm -hmm. being made. Mm -hmm. um, which also says that there's probably plenty to take back and make new things out of it. But without it, you know, and everybody's still operating in a silo. That was the one kind of criticism I had even for Houdini, who, mm. you know, even more so than Patagonia is, is I think, easily the, the best example in the outdoor space of, like, mm. how they do things and at least their approach. Yeah. 
But, you know, their their stores and their secondhand stores and their secondhand websites, it's all Houdini stuff. Mm. You know, there are, you know, uh, we've had some, we had, like Gear Trade was a, worked with our, with our podcast and that's a retailer, REI starting to do it. Mm. But mostly the brands are like, it feels a little box checky, you know, kind of like, yeah. oh, we have secondhand on our website now, so we're good. It's like, well, you know, like it's actually... It would be probably better if we had one communal spot where we could all shop for this, but that, that's not in the interest of the brand to do stuff like that, right? Yeah, so totally. it's it is it is a little difficult to kind of. There's still a much larger thing to to kind of tackle here. Yeah, I think so. I think I'd just really like to see it kind of the idea of circularity sort of being embraced more widely along like the the business model and the and the the product design. Um, and I'm not trying. Like I think. Um, you know, taking these first steps is really important. The fact that we're talking about circularity is fantastic. So I'm not trying to right. say like, this isn't good enough. This isn't a good step forwards. But imagine if brand, more brands are talking about, okay, well, we're going to make all of, you know, this product out of a mono material, or we're investing in different type of manufacturing. So that it's really easy to take apart at the end of its life. So we can remanufacture it into a new garment. So Again, it kind of feels like everything's sort of coming at the end of the life cycle, but I want to see people like thinking about circularity right from the start, like right from the right, right. design phase. Yeah, you're conceiving of the product, then it's like, okay, great, this is going to be an awesome jacket. Mm-hmm. What do people do when they're done with it? You know, what's exactly. what's the process? It's 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 a it's another part of the brief, right? Of when you're develop, developing something new. Is there and and I don't know this. This is going to be spitballing it based off of what mm-hmm. I've been thinking about. What you're talking is. Is there any sort of movement at the factory level to start thinking about solving problems for this? Because if you think about if the factories start offering this, like the brands, I'm sure, would hop on board right away, right? And it's just like, is it in their interest to help develop that infrastructure? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, currently, like at the scales that we're working at, probably not. Because if you think about manufacturing in the linear economy and manufacturing from virgin materials that's so efficient it's so quick and if you think and they operate on such like a razor thin like you know the all the the, i'm sure they're not even making much money at all right it's like you know that's why the worker conditions often suck and all those kinds of things right exactly a hundred percent so everything like you say is like razor sharp margins everything is engineered to be you know down to the second and then if you look at something like remanufacturing you have to do that on an individual basis. Like, how do you productionize that? Um, that's really difficult because if you're getting back, like, even if you're, get, you're getting back 100 garments, let's say, there could be six different sizes in there. There could be 20 different styles. It's not as efficient. So it's, it's kind of really hard to, to offer that, I would say. I mean, definitely are seeing it on some level. So, for instance, um, here in the UK, there's a brand called T-Mill, and they have started a really great uh, program this year uh, called Thread Not Dead, and basically they will take back any 100% cotton garment from any brand because they have that circular infrastructure to recycle it, shred it back into the fiber, and turn it back into cotton garments. So that's fantastic. So it's, I'm not saying that it's not happening, but at the minute, like you say, like is it is it worth it on that kind of scale? But it is happening in other other industries. So like Renault, the car manufacturer, like they have started a remanufacturing factory uh, in France, I think it is. So I think sometimes with these kind of things, kind of tech can be sort of ahead of the game in terms of yeah. like production and, and, and that side of things. So it's interesting seeing it happen in, in other industries. And I just wonder if someone will pioneer kind of streamlining it within fashion. I was speaking to someone today who, uh, the other day, sorry, who has like history with working in production and they they were made a really interesting point that we have managed to build up this 
global, this multinational industry that deals with borders, that deals with supply chains, that deals with all the complexity of like different resources and have managed to make it work. Mm-hmm. Why can't we apply that like ingenuity, that um, you know, that joined up thinking to this side of things? I think, like you say, yeah. if it kind of came together, it could happen. Well, regarding another sort of outdoor adjacent mm-hmm. brand, I mean, I guess they're technically an outdoor brand. You went all the way to Peru, I think it was last fall or last summer, to observe Outer Known's uh, partner for organic cotton. And you wrote a piece about it for PlasticFree.com. Yeah. Uh, looking at Outer Known's website, they do offer secondhand. Kind of like we talked about, it's their own stuff. But mm. I did see a couple of things, actually, that I was like, ooh, I actually want one of those shirts. They make great stuff. I do like their products a lot. It is great But quality. for brand, I mean, they really have rooted their message in sustainable manufacturing. Mm. Um, but I didn't really notice, just looking at their website anyway, that they seem to be offering much more than anybody else. I mean, what, mm. what did you sort of take away about the brand outer known you know, during your research for that article? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that outwardly, I do think they look similar to other brands. It looks like a similar offering. And, you know, some of the messaging, I think they say something like we're the first brand founded on like a total commitment to sustainability. And yeah, honestly, yeah, like, good marketing, when, guys. yeah, and when I read a line <laughs> like that, honestly, it's like, I just think, right, bullshit. And it sort of yeah, sets totally. me, yeah. And it makes me even more cynical than it already am. But I have to say, it was actually really impressed so when I went to Peru I think it was last May now um oh god was it that long ago I know that's how long <laughs> how long since we've spoken um so when I went out to Peru um the their sort of regenerative organic cotton supply chain um I should probably explain should I I'll probably explain quickly what regenerative organic cotton is so basically yeah, it goes that's a good idea it goes one further than organic cotton so it's not just about like cutting out the bad stuff it's the farmers working in harmony with the land so like it's a stewardship role and it's talking about like restoring the soil it's regenerative it's regenerating the land literally so their regenerative organic cotton supply chain was quite new in Peru at the time so I kind of went to see some different farms see some factories and see the um, kind of cotton production process and what I found in kind of talking to the team, talking to their partner, um, Bergman Rivera, who run the cotton side of things, talking to the farmers, is that there does just seem to be like a culture of doing things the right way, basically. So spearheading this project um, was someone called Dylan Chapelsky. He is the, let me get his title right, Senior Manager of Product Development and R&D at the brand. And in a previous job, he tried to set up an organic, uh, regenerative organic cotton supply chain. Um, and ultimately, it failed because there just wasn't that buy-in from the brand. So mm-hmm. he then took the idea to Outer Known um, when he moved over to that company. And the argument is, like, I want to do a thing that no one is asking for, and it's going to cost us loads more money than conventional cotton or organic cotton is going gonna, is gonna to cost. And they said, okay, yeah, which already I think is great. Um, so... They're partnering with this company who, you know, really recommend anyone sort of look into as a, as a model of how development in cotton can, can be undertaken. So the first Latin American company to be certified under GOTS, third organic cotton producer to become regenerative organic cotton certified. So they're, they're pretty hmm. impressive already. Um, and they kind of see that they need to offer their growers security so they can't just say okay you can come to us uh with one product line and we will promise you an entire crop that you could pull that product line at any time so to to you know convince Bergman Rivera out known basically said okay well we're gonna come to Peru we'll build out uh, an entire product line uh, uh build out an entire product plan there sorry um you know they moved production there they kind of actually really invested in the region um which I think 
you know, is, is really significant. Um, and you can, the relationship between uh, Autonome, between Bergman and Vera and the farmers is, is obviously really quite established. And mm-hmm. Orlando Bergman, who's the, the CEO of Bergman Rivera, mentioned that actually quite a lot of companies do come to Peru and they'll take photos and they'll have, you know, these great conversations and they'll go and they'll put all these photos on the website and they'll never hear from them again. Um, whereas, you know, Autonome, this just isn't the case. They've actually, you know, really invested. And and something that kind of really struck me was that it it wasn't just like absorbing the cost of the premiums that they have to pay for ROC. It wasn't just like building out that line plan. They're making like investment in infrastructure in the area. So like plumb toilets and nurseries and things like that that really count. Mm. But they're, they're just not shouting about it. They're just, it's just right. happening. They're doing it. It's not like, you know, they're not blog posts about it or Instagram posts about it or whatever. Um, you know, there are other things that they do, you know, we had hours of questions with them. Like it was, it was quite intense and they were really open to answering everything. Um, things like when they hadn't forecasted very well, which is obviously something that needs to be dealt with. Um, sure. They pay to warehouse and store product that they've overbought. You know, they're not landfilling it. They're not burning it. They're not destroying it. Um, and even small things like that, like taking the financial and logistical responsibility for overstock, again, I think is a signal of just kind of doing the right thing. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, outwardly, I did kind of think, well, what are they doing differently? But yeah. they are, when I was there, they were on the cusp of doubling their ROC output. And this year, the plan is also to, to establish a new ROC supply chain in India as well, which, you know, I will be following up on. So... Yeah, kind of being in it, 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 it was quite impressive. Um, and, you know, just to say that I don't think brands are our saviors, so I will still be keeping a critical eye on them. Totally. You know, even if a brand does seem to be impressive, I still think we have to kind of hold them to account. But it was really interesting to be in it and to actually, mm-hmm. you know, for a change in my career, <laughs> to see a brand who actually seems invested in, in doing things the right way was, um, it was very refreshing. Well, I'll be the cynical one then. Uh, I'll, t- I'll take that. I'll take that hat from you on this one because I mean, it, yeah. it it is great. I mean, and yeah. look, and it's we do put the pressure by too much back on the brands because mm. we want them to solve our problems for us. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what Ken Pucker was on a year ago talking about. That was the that was the intent, right? If you know, doing doing well and doing mm-hmm. good can all lead to the higher bottom line, and, and mm-hmm. you should do it. And that has not worked out. Everybody just <laughs> defaults to the revenue. Definitely. Yeah. And what makes me nervous is mm. that. I mean, Outer Known's been, what, less than 10 years. I, mm. I'm assuming they're extremely well-funded because I hear these things and, like, mm. this is exactly what people should be doing. They're, mm. they're, they're, like, they're working within the system. They're making, you know, doing, making good choices, mm-hmm. not just flooding. Oh, let's just put it out at 60% off to get rid of inventory. How do we handle that? Mm. But then it also makes me wonder, like, what's, what's your cash flow like? Because you're selling $130 shirts mm-hmm. in a market where I can get another flannel. Not as good, obviously, even from a quality fit or anything else, but mm-hmm. for 30 bucks. So... It makes me nervous that, you know, we're going to see the like, well, we gave it a good run and mm-hmm. a year from now, Outer Known isn't around anymore. Um, just because mm-hmm. that tends to be something, unless unless they hit it big. No, I could be wrong. I don't know their numbers. Maybe they're crushing it. It just, but I, in terms of like where they pop up, even on a commercial side, it just seems like they're still pretty small and niche. Um, but yeah. that being said, there's still incredible lessons to take away from, from your experience there. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's a good way to move into another complicated world, which is the world of PFAS, which yeah. has kind of been become the topic of the hour, uh, so it to has. speak. I imagine kind of everywhere. I mean, it has been for a few years, but the mm. outdoor space specifically, 
uh, REIs and other uh, REI and others have vowed to move away from forever chemicals and brands mm-hmm. like Keen are now claiming that they are PFAS free. Mm-hmm. You know, Outdoor Research, which is another brand based up in Seattle, they were recently touting. I loved this uh, because it's like this is a new development as far as I'm concerned. I saw this in the last week. They're touting their upcoming Spring 24 line as being 80 percent free of intentionally added PFAS. Interesting. Uh, like the intentionally added mm-hmm. is a okay. That's a new one. Nice distinction. <laughs> yes, and uh, and then being at 100 percent for Fall 24 again intentionally added. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, you know because they're adding the intentionally. I think people are realizing that this is a much bigger problem than anybody realized. I think yeah. there was a lot of good intentions of like, oh, these, we really need to get away from these. And then mm-hmm. when they kind of dug into it, I think there was a little bit of, oh, it's in everything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, has the impact of, is this an outdoor specific thing that people are talking about? Are you hearing about it in other uh, sectors of fashion? Yeah, it's definitely, it's coming through. I would say that a lot of the coverage dedicated to it that I've seen has definitely been outdoor focused or children's wear focused specifically. And I think children's Mm. wear makes sense. You know, it's going to set off alarm bells for parents, like the links to the health issues obviously going to make people really conscious about what they're putting their kids in. PFAS has been found in breast milk. It's been found in umbilical cords. Like you say, it's, it's everywhere. Um, so in that sense of kind of like almost like where the panic lies, Fashion yeah. has got a bit more of a pass, but I would say that's not for a lack of trying on behalf of certain journalists. So a pair of mine called Alden Wicker has written a really great book that I'd recommend to people um, called To Die For. And it talks about toxic chemicals in fashion and apparel. Um, and I think she's done a really great job of opening up the conversation. So kind of through coverage of her book, the the fashion has, you know, has sort of spread into uh, the conversation, sorry, has, has spread into fashion. Um but I th- when you think about how far and sort of how many garments this sort of touches, basically, so nearly 75% of all products labeled stain or water resistant contain PFAS. So I think a reckoning is coming. And then, yeah. so in California, a new regulation is coming. So from the 1st of January, they will prohibit the manufacture, sale, and distribution of textiles containing PFAS in levels exceeding, I think, 100 parts per million. So that's like deemed as the as the uh, like tipping point for the safe level. So that I think is going to, you know, sort of potentially get us towards that critical tipping point. There are brands that are, you know, fashion focused brands that are doing PFAS free collections. So like you've had H&M, Zara, Levi's, you know, I think that's really interesting. And and you mentioned Keen, um, and I was doing a bit of research on them a little while ago when I was writing about PFAS, and and it reportedly took four years and ten thousand hours of work for them to um, move away from PFAS. So I think that the language distinction, you know, is it, again, it's like brings out that cynic in us. But I think at the same time, there are these much more stringent about like greenwashing rules and communication rules. So potentially because of what you said like it's literally fucking everywhere like you kind of have to say that because it might just be in them without you even putting them in so yeah but I mean I think again it's that it's it's a drop in the ocean it's just a start etc it's not solving anything but it's that kind of thing like okay it's in the conversation where do we go from here are these are some kind of bigger entities gonna ever commit to like being PFAS free free you know, throughout the whole lines. I don't know. I'm interested to see where it goes. Again, it's like, it, as with everything, <laughs> everything, even the stuff we talked about for like a decade is kind of still a start. <laughs> 
Well, before we get to your book, I did have an idea that I thought would be kind of fun because you're very plugged into what brands in the fashion space fashion space are up to in terms of how they're marketing themselves. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let's have a segment called This Week in Greenwashing. And I was curious if you had any examples of some brands that are just looking great to consumers and when in actuality, it's just pure greenwashing. It can be in any category. It doesn't have to be outdoor. Did you Were you able to come up with anything? I do. I have two fantastic slash depressing uh, examples. <laughs> so in this past week, actually, uh, fast fashion brand Boohoo, who... Uh, kind of my arch nemesis. The headquarters is like a 30 minute bike ride away from my house. I think you mentioned that to me before. Yeah. So, you know, my favorite brand. Um, So they've basically surprised absolutely no one. They're at the helm of of another scandal. So BBC Panorama. I don't know if you have that in the States, but it's like an investigative Mm -hmm. arm of the BBC. So they found that Boohoo has been putting made in the UK labels on thousands of items that were actually made in South Asia. And in itself, you know, that's quite scandalous. But I think it's extra significant because after another scandal a few years ago, which was about kind of pay and conditions in contractor factories, they opened a quote unquote manufacturing centre of excellence in Manchester, um, which was offered supposedly end to end garment production in the UK. They made a huge deal out of it. It was like, the, the face of ethical and responsible British manufacturing. And so by kind of putting these labels on, they were giving people the impression that everything would be made under these shiny new tip-top conditions when actually, you know, it was made in South Asia within its usual contract factories, which historically have been plagued with problems. So, yeah, that was um, that was an interesting one. <laughs> I love the... When when people try to get away with that, typically they do the like designed it. Apple does it, right? Mm. Designed in California, it's like mm-hmm. great. You know, who cares? Okay. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like uh, I could design something anywhere, right. you know, and then where are you making it? <laughs> exactly. But but to say to legitimately put on the mm. label "Made in," right? When it is not that hard to like peel back. If I mean you're a journalist, but you don't think you even need, need to be a, a journalist to kind of like. You, I mean, with the internet these days, you can kind of find out just about anything. So I'm sorry, like that's a that was a really big gamble to throw that on there and not think that someone was going to find out yeah exactly and they have said i think we should have to we probably have to say this they have said it's a result of human error but this is a brand that has an answer for everything and it's also probably worth noting that the factory the center of excellence is actually proposed to close later this year so manufacturing center of excellence will be no more you could tell me it was human error if it was like one skew, like one size. I mean, mm. this is the way these things go on. It was like total mis- you know, error at the factory. They used the wrong one, mm-hmm. but that's not how this typically goes. If you have it on multiple styles, like, I mean, it is like, that is, <laughs> that was intentional. Totally. So, anyway. I mean, apparently one in, one in every 250 garments potentially was, was impacted by this quote unquote human error. So yeah, <laughs> it's pretty big. Way to go, boohoo. What's your, what's your <laughs> second one? Second one. It's not this week, but I thought it linked really nicely to circularity. So uh, sort of towards the end of last year, Changing Markets Foundation carried out a really, really interesting um, investigation where they added trackers to clothes that were being sent back via um, take-back schemes in high street stores. It was in the UK, it was in Belgium, and it was in France. And it was stores like the North Face, Uniqlo, H&M, and Nike. Um, and would you believe <laughs> some of the clothes... I have a yes, feeling I will. <laughs> Some of the clothes were being resold, as promised. However, some of them were being destroyed. Some of them were lost in limbo, just sitting in shipping containers. Some of them were lost at sea, somehow. And a lot of them were also exported to Africa. And we know African countries are already kind of drowning in castos from the global north. So, yeah, this the take-back schemes, as you know, I think, are like a flagship of so many brand circularity efforts. Um, 
And then the reality is that the system is actually incredibly flawed and what you think you're taking back guilt-free could well be destroyed or lost. So, yeah, when we're talking about, you know, the first steps of circularity, are those efforts actually meaningful? Follow through. Yeah, exactly. We're we're not seeing that. The systems and the, the kind of meaningful follow through and the like oversight is just not in place. I don't begrudge it. I mean, look, the system was the system and it's, mm. and it's difficult. I mean, this isn't, you know, 30, 40 years ago when people were kind of making things up as they went along. Mm. They were using factories in different places and shipping out. It. It the, the infrastructure for manufacturing is so well established. Mm. And manufacturing at scale, right? Mm-hmm. Factories, those are like, I've said this, probably said it to you, I've said it to other guests. You and I right now could spend an hour, let's design a few garments and what, 10 days we'd have prototypes after Sorry, like our one hour call today. Yeah. It is set in stone how mm. stuff pretty much gets made today. So doing anything that is not in that system is really hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't begrudge any of these big companies who have now are, you know, they're worth billions of dollars and we may not like that they are, but they are. Mm. And so to change is hard. However, mm-hmm. if you're going to and you're going to make announcements and bring attention to yourself and take all of that good PR, mm-hmm. You got to follow through or at least run to accountability if you fuck it up along the way, you know, and like that's kind of I don't I don't know. Maybe this was a pure accident, but Mm -hmm. come on, guys, like just it's misleading, you know, just say, hey, we screwed up. We're trying. And then you could get a lot of sympathy for that, too. Right. Like, well, hey, we're really trying to think change things. Mm. But but this one didn't work out so well. You know, I've publicly said I don't want any outdoor brands to sponsor this podcast because I don't (laughs) want to be able to lose objectivity or like commenting on them. I will backtrack on that for this one thing. We have, Here's a segment, everybody. This Week in Greenwashing with Sophie Benson. Put your money where your mouth is. The Houdinis, the Patagonians of the world, because you can sponsor this segment. Yes, <laughs> Cause, please. Because we'll call that. you out if you're greenwashing. Definitely, <laughs> so. yeah. And I will, believe me. <laughs> Heck yeah. All right, so there's a, there's a sponsorship opportunity for anyone listening. This Week in Greenwashing with Sophie Benson. So, <laughs> well, let's talk about your book. Yeah, how's yes. it going? It's been a few months. You know, yes. where can people buy it? All that good stuff. Yeah, so you can buy it from um, a whole load of outlets so I don't know if you have Waterstones but there's Waterstones Bookshop.org Barnes & Noble Booktopia It's the Sustainable Wardrobe by the way I should yes. have mentioned the title of the book The yes. Sustainable Wardrobe <laughs> The Sustainable that's, Wardrobe That's important Yeah um, Whisper you can also buy it from Amazon but you can also get it from independent booksellers and I've also heard that people are ordering it into their local library which I love like please do that the idea of my book that's in the library great. Yeah amazing um, Yeah so it's called Sustainable Wardrobe obviously the idea is kind of building a sustainable wardrobe, but basically the idea is that it teaches you everything you need to know to become a sustainable fashion expert. So like you'll learn how clothes are made, you'll learn about fibers, you'll learn about the history of consumerism, you'll learn about waste colonialism, fashion psychology, how to care for your clothes properly. So there's loads of kind of lessons to be learned in there. There's expert interviews. So there's an interview from a garment maker in there, um, from an expert in microplastics. And something that I really love as well is that there are also practical elements because I think you sort of, when you get that information about sort of sometimes how bad things are, you kind of think, oh my God, what am I going to do with this energy? So the idea was, well, let me give you an outlet for it. So yeah, there are practical things like there's upcycling projects and repair how-tos. And I guess the aim was just for it to be like accessible. I think it's a book that you can just like dip into, you know, put it down, think about it, take some action and then come back to it. So like it, I, I didn't ever want to patronize anyone. Like if, there are hard topics in there, but hopefully it's also constructive. Like I want it to be an active guide. So 
you come away from it hopefully feeling like you actually know what to do about this rather than just coming away and being like oh my god everything's terrible and I just don't know what to do yeah, look for for the outdoor audience listening to this. It, it's like a guidebook for how to buy your clothing, you know. And it's like the format is amazing. I, I kind of expected like we've been talking about having you back on for a while, and you know, so I got a copy of it. I'm like, okay, I got to make sure I sit and read. And once I started reading it, I'm like, oh, this is just it is it is like a guidebook. It is here are topics, here's informative things. Your your library one is a great example. It's definitely one you'd want to check out of the library. Mm. Maybe make some copies of a few pages, you know, take that home with you. It's the kind of book that you'll feel good marking up and like dog earring pages, you know, like just, it's the, it's, it's how, yeah, to your point, how to do things rather than feeling helpless. And it's not preachy. It's honest. It's just, you know, here are for those moments when you're talking about like some of the headlines we're talking about and topics we're talking about on this episode, Mm. you know, here's what you can do. All right, everybody go buy the sustainable wardrobe, Sophie Benson. You can get it from Jeff Bezos. You don't have to, but you can. So it's there if you need to. (laughs) All right, Sophie, let's, let's make sure it's not so long between uh, between appearances here on The Rock Fight. Yes, for, please. For next time. Yeah. The, the, uh, the fashion world will give us things to talk about, I'm sure. It will. Let's not leave it like another book's writing worth of time between <laughs> our meetings. <laughs> I don't know. You might just start churning them out, though, you know? Well, you never know. Yeah, let's see. All right, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. That's the show for today. But before you click us off, please open up whatever app you are listening to this on and give that follow button a little old tap. And if you're feeling extra giving, leave us a review that says easily the greatest outdoor podcast of our time. Big thanks to my guest, Sophie Benson. Buy your own copy of The Sustainable Wardrobe and see all of Sophie's good work by heading over to sophiebenson.com. We'll be back later this week with more outdoor ideas that aim for your head. The Rock Fight is a production of Rock Fight LLC. I'm Colin True. Thanks for listening and here to take us out. He just got done with soundcheck and he's going to play the Rock Fight fight song just for you. It's Krista Makes. We'll see you next time, Rock Fighters. Rock Fight!